All right. So we're in Galatians chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 10, and um, we are looking at the topic of brotherly restoration. Um, And I guess uh, maybe bigger than just the section we're going to talk about today, we would probably entitle um, brotherly obligations under the law of Christ, so things that we need to do. Um, But um, much of Galatians, and and obviously we are not doing a book study today. Uh, You know, we're not starting a new book. We're going to do an exposition of a small portion of this book. Uh, but we do need a little bit of context, um, so I want to start with that. And much of what is written in chapters 1 through 5 is um, the t- on the topic of not replacing the gospel with a works-based salvation or even a works-based sanctification. Um, if you were to go back and just, just we'll skim a few things to get us to this point, In chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul would tell the Galatians, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So they had essentially been duped by false teaching. Um, And the primary falsehood that they were duped into is thinking that um, the law had to be brought back in, um, in addition to the work of Christ. Um, And so Paul, uh, as he um, gets into the letter here, much of chapter 2, and even the end of chapter 1, through chapter 2, kind of, Paul has to re-argue his authority um, by sharing a lot of his history, his his, um, uh, testimony, his, how he was taught directly of the Lord. He did not confer with flesh or blood. He spoke um, to Jesus Christ himself. And um, so that he would uh, have the, the, he's trying to clarify what the true gospel is. And so, um, <clears throat> so after arguing then that the grace of the, 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 the gospel and, and not the bondage of the law is what they need to be under, um, he, when he, by the time we get to chapter 5, exhorts them to live in freedom. Um, you are stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Uh, so don't be entangled with the burden of the law, but recognize your freedom in Christ. And as chapter 5 continues, he he describes the difference between a <clears throat> fleshly walk and a spiritual one. We see the works of the flesh there beginning in verse 16, and there's a long list of them, um, especially as you move beyond verse 19. And then, then we know, of course, the fruit of the Spirit beginning in verse 22. And so we see the difference there between the two walks. And so... As you come to the end of chapter 5, you have an exhortation of Paul to avoid vainglory and envy. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, verse 26 of chapter 5, provoking one another, envying one another. And so when so this is going to launch us into what is chapter 6, where we see now the practical outworking of a brother that takes this exhortation to heart, the exhortation to not be vainglorious, not to be in envy, 
And so now he's going to talk to believers about their interaction between one another, given that they are free from the law. What are they supposed to do to one another? And so that's the context you need to remember as we move into chapter 6. Um, so <clears throat> specifically, um, we're only going to be concentrating on the first two verses today and of chapter 6. And our theme then is going to be brotherly restoration. And this is an example of living under the law of Christ. <clears throat> So restoration, um, bringing back a one or, or um, fixing uh, something that's been broken. I'm going to start with a story. Um, uh, Spurgeon shares the story of John Wesley. There's a story of John Wesley going several times to a certain town where he thought there was a band of earnest Christian people. But he was met by a brother who told him how dead they all were what little life there was in their meetings for prayer and how much inconsistency there was among them. When he got there, he did not notice anything of this. So the third time he went, he said to this brother, how is it that you always meet me and tell me these things about the brothers? Nobody else ever seems to say it. Well, you see, said Mr. Wesley, I have a rare gift of discerning spirits. Oh, said Wesley. Then wrap that talent up in a napkin and bury it, and you will have done the best thing possible with it. The Lord will never ask you what you have done with it if you will only keep it to yourself. So we need to be correct about restoration and how we handle it um, and, and recognizing a fault and how we want to see it fixed. And why we want to see it fixed. So we're going to begin in verse 1 with the reason for restoration. Brethren, if, any, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. <clears throat> well, the reason for restoration begins is there's a problem, right? If a man be overtaken. So somebody has been overtaken. The word for overtaken is only used three times in scripture and uh, essentially has the idea of meaning to be surprised that something came up and grabbed you. You were overtaken by a fall. It came up from behind, right? Um, and uh, referring to Spurgeon again, he said that this happens to Christians that are traveling too slowly on the road to heaven. They, they let things come up and grab them and stop them. So he's been overtaken, but he's been overtaken with a fault. Um, and a fault's just simply a trespass or a lapse or a fall. Um, and I guess the idea here to keep to, to think about is, and we'll talk about this more. He's speaking to Christians, but he says, brethren. And he says, a man be overtaken in a fault. This type of a fault is not... Um, really like a premeditated, you, you were planning and days and days on sinning and then you went and did it. This is more of something that kind of crept up on you and then in passion or whatever rose up in you and your lust, you, you were overtaken in sin. Um, sin overtook you. It's still your fault. You're still guilty of it, but it's, um, 
it stands in distinction to what the scriptures would tell us about deliberately planning on sinning as a course of life. And those who have sinned as a course of the, as the course of their life are not born of God. First John 3, 9 reminds us that whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his sin remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So doth not commit sin is in a continuing active sense such that you would have a habit of life. So what's an idea or example of, of <clears throat> someone that had a sin that they were overtaken in, and um, you may think of well, you may think of a couple, um, but I'll, the one that um, refer relates to our scripture reading, right? In Second Samuel chapter eleven, um, in verse two, uh, the Bible tells us, and it came to pass in an evening evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. David probably didn't spend the last couple of weeks planning for that evening. He was overtaken by a fault. What's the counterexample to that? Joseph, right? He was prepared. When Potiphar's wife uh, approached him, he ran away, um, which is a good idea. Um, so there's a, there's a passion of lust. Um, here's another example in Numbers chapter 20. We think of Moses, right, leading the children of Israel. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hands, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. So again, Moses probably didn't spend days ahead of time saying, You know what? I'm going to hit that rock that day because I'm going to be mad. He, he got mad. And we know when we uh, <clears throat> get mad that um, we can do things in sin that we weren't necessarily planning on. Um, it can, we can be overtaken by a fault. We can get caught from behind, essentially. So we can talk about how we can avoid being overtaken. Well, we can avoid being overtaken by watching, by watching. Uh, Mark 14, 38 um, tells us, Watch ye and pray. This is Jesus talking to the disciples, lest ye enter in temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. We need to watch. We need to be on guard. <clears throat> Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, right? Be good to keep an eye out. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may be devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Be sober, be vigilant, watch. So that's Mark and Peter and now Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So sober, watch, vigilant. That's how we need to be careful to not be overtaken. But we're unfortunately not talking about someone who was successful at that. We are talking about here in chapter 6 and verse 1 of Galatians, someone who was overtaken. So what do we need to do 
If a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore. Restore such an one. So we need to restore. Uh, fix. Um, make perfect is the sense of the word. Frame. Um, mend. Um, I'll read a verse that is um, um, that, that has the same Greek word. You can see what it means. Matthew 4.21 and going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. The word mending is the same word that here is translated restore. So we're to mend the one who was overtaken. And that relates again then to our morning scripture reading, where Nathan tells David, thou art the man. Thou art the man. So, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to restore someone who is overtaken in a fault. But our flesh can get us in trouble when we try to do that. Um, So, the next part we move on to is the qualification of the restorer qualification of the restorer and still in verse one very first word brethren these are the people paul is addressing spiritual restoration can only be accomplished by those that know the lord right paul isn't going to go out to somebody on the street and say yo bub um you know i got somebody who's got a spiritual problem here i need your help um We know from the use of the word brethren, again, that this letter is written to believers. Um, When Paul opened this book, he did say that uh, all the brethren, so he was writing Paul an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Um, And so now he's speaking specifically to brethren in those churches. Now, in some ways, it seems like the whole church, or at least a big part of the church, had been overtaken by a fault. And that was the fault of trying to add the law to uh, grace, um, to the work of Christ. Uh, But they had kind of let the law creep back in um, for both salvation and sanctification. And that was kind of the primary purpose of his writing. But uh, here he does speak to not just brethren, but there's a particular type of brethren, right? Ye which are spiritual. <clears throat> so ye, that's our good old-fashioned word for multiple you, right? It's a, it's a plural. So he's speaking not to just one person. So restoration isn't just for the pastor. Restoration is not just for the deacon. Restoration is for ye which are spiritual. So, that brings up a pretty good question. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be spiritual? Seems like um, an interesting way to say it. Um, Well, there's a distinction in Scripture between things that are spiritual versus things that are carnal. And um, I guess we could turn together to look at two of them. They're in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go 1 Corinthians chapter 2. verse 14. 
1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. And if you just continue right next door into chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So, what do we see here? We see that Paul recognizes a distinction between a babe in Christ who is more carnal and one that is spiritual would not be a babe in Christ. So the suggestion is is that those that are spiritual are more mature in the faith. Baby Christians are carnal Christians, or can be, more frequently. Their thoughts are more often on the flesh than on the spirit. More often on pleasing self than pleasing God. Or not understanding enough in the faith to be mature in it. And in this case, in back in, in, well, in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were, you had believers that it appears aren't, weren't supposed to be baby anymore, uh, that were, um, that were still of the flesh or carnal. And so you see the idea then that um, someone that is spiritual doesn't just mean they've been at the church for a long time or they've been born again for a long time. So that's not the only qualification to restore someone. You need to be spiritual. You need to be mature. In fact, back in Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul asked them, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So he's kind of a... Uh, accusing them of the same things. But clearly he expected there to be those that were mature in the churches in Galatia. So we need to be careful. We need to find someone who is mature in the faith. Well, why is that? Why, what might a, a carnal brother do in this case? Well, what would what are natural issues that might run in, we might run into if we see somebody else in a fault, or even before that, if we're carnal and we look at other Christians? Well, one thing we might do is we tend to like to recognize the faults of others before our own. Um, in Luke eighteen eleven. Remember, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself: God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. So as a carnal, and I'm not trying to argue that the Pharisee necessarily was a a true saved individual, but the idea being a carnal brother may be on the lookout for things to restore. (laughs) Um, They might be, oh boy, everybody else is just terrible. Um, they might tend to be of the type with the wrong motive relating to Sunday school, not being grounded, rooted and grounded in love, that they might tend to condemn others versus trying to find grace, to, to, to use grace in the situation. Their, their, their motives might be wrong. What might the carnal brother do? The carnal brother might magnify faults that are small, right? The moat versus the beam. A, there can be a hypocrisy involved, which is what kind of what the Pharisee uh, example gave us. But, but sometimes 
you know, a man would be overtaken in a fault, um, we might say, oh, you've been overtaken by this. And it might just be they slipped up. You know, they, they, didn't, they don't need a full spiritual restoration. Um, you essentially are looking for a reason to kind of rag on them. What else might you do when you notice a fault? Well, another problem, if you aren't spiritual, you might not seek to restore. You might just gossip about it, right? Did you see what such and such did? Man, they slept up bad. And talking about somebody else's faults instead of helping them with them. So what can we do to be spiritual? What's going to help us restore a brother that's overtaken in a fault? Well, we need to know what things are faults, right? If we don't know that something's a fault, well, you shouldn't have been doing that. Um, We need knowledge. We need to be in the word of God. We don't need, the world might tell us things, you know, like, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to correct you of your fault of sleeping in too much. Well, there's a biblical principle for uh, diligence and sleeping only the amount that we should, but that might not, just because they don't wake up at the same time as you do, might not mean that they have a spiritual fault. They don't, may not need restoration. You need to know the word of God. <clears throat> not just base it on kind of personal preferences. Well, you don't live like I do. Um, you, I'm going to restore you because you use lipstick. <laughs> and, I, and I don't believe that's right. Well, let's go to the Word of God and understand it. Also, Christian maturity or completeness comes from living by faith. So we don't just need knowledge of what the word of God says is a fault. We need experience, not experience faulting. I'm not trying to argue that. Um, That's why, so the experience, the reason we need experience is those that have recently been saved are likely not the ones doing the restoring. They're not mature enough in knowledge. And they may just not have the life experience to to see, you know, this is, I, I know what this problem looks like and I've seen it in others or maybe I've seen it in myself. A third thing that we would need to, 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 to know or to have to be able to restore someone is we need to know our brother, right? Um, how can we know their potential fault is if all we ever do with them is talk about the weather? Right? If we just, hello, you know, ah, good to see you again. Boy, it's been nice out. Yep. I'll talk to you later. Um, <clears throat> not that we are out seeking faults, but we are out wanting to to, and we'll get it, we'll get to it later, bear each other's burdens. Um, we need to know people to do that. Um, and so for those of us that struggle with interacting with people, um, this is an admonition to us to do that, to learn about them. So the bottom line here is that spiritual surgery cannot be done with fleshly hands. Spiritual surgery cannot be done with fleshly hands. So now that we know some qualifications, things that we would need of the restorer, we need this. What about the spirit of the restorer? What should be in the heart of the restorer? And we're still in verse one. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Meekness or humility, um, gentleness. 
The English definition of meekness, humility, resignation, submission to the divine will, without murmuring, opposed to pride, arrogancy. <clears throat> and in the Greek, it's the same idea. Um, inward grace of the soul, calmness toward God in particular, mild and gentle. So we need to be meek about this. Now, if we're going to have meekness, meekness is made possible by the Spirit of God, right? It is a fruit of the Spirit. It's right next to us here in verse 22 of chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. <clears throat> a gentleness, a um, Latin, uh, not in a proud way. So meekness is made possible by the Spirit of God. Meekness is blessed by the Lord, right? Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So meekness is a good thing. Recognized by the Lord is a good thing. What might meekness look like in a situation like this? Proverbs 15, 1 reminds us that a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Um... Confronting somebody in an angry and loud way is probably not going to end up well. Paul used meekness in his approach, um, especially at the Church of Corinth uh, when he was hitting the the kind of seeking to restore them. Um, in 1 Corinthians 4.21, he says, What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? And he really desired the latter. That's what he was uh, seeking. And even in this book, right, the Foolish Galatians, it seems a little sharp, but he's doing it out of the spirit of love. And I don't think he was, um, if he had spoken the letter to them, he wouldn't have been yelling or screaming at them. Um, so we don't only need the knowledge to restore someone. We also might have, must have right hearts towards them. All right, well, <clears throat> that's the heart of the spirit of the restorer. But there's a caution as we get to the end of verse 1. Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I like the word for considering, um, in the Greek, it's scopio, like a periscope, scoping. Um, you got to look around. It's a view. It's a look. Think of a periscope, right? Do you know what a periscope is? Yeah? You know, a little guy comes up out of the submarine, a little periscope, and he looks around. Or you can, like, those kids' toys, right, where you have a little scope and you could look around at the edge of the door. Um so we put a periscope up when somewhere where we can't see to somewhere so that we can look around and see something that maybe our eyes normally wouldn't be able to see. We need to we use it for to investigate the potential for danger. And isn't that right? Isn't that well we're getting ready to fix the problems of somebody else? Can we be in a point where we're kind of blind to maybe stumbling into something ourselves and needing to have our periscope up, periscope up for, for temptation? 
He's, Paul's exhorting the spiritual Galatians to be cautious in their act of restoration, to keep an eye on themselves while they pursue this noble goal. And what do, what do, they, what do they need to have their periscope or their scope up for? What do they need to be watching for? Lest thou also be tempted. I mean, tempted kind of means to be put to the test. Something comes up to test you. Um, To prove us while we seek to restore someone else. So what are some temptations that the believer could fall into while restoring another? Um, And we've talked kind of along these lines about things we can fall into. Um, but we, how could we, while restoring somebody, stumble ourselves? That's essentially the question. And the carnal Christian may judge those that fall uh, with a spirit of arrogance rather than with a spirit of meekness. So if you have the wrong spirit, then arrogance can set them up to their own temptation. Well, I just seem to be restoring everybody around here, you know, and, and that must mean something pretty good about me. Um, and it sets them up for their own temptation and subsequent sin, right? We know pride, uh, uh, pride goes before destruction, uh, Proverbs 16, 18, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Paul said the same thing to church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So that's something we could stumble into that could catch us. We could be caught correcting someone and be tempted to start raising ourselves up. And that would be where we might also be tempted. Same with the idea of magnifying the fall out of proportion. Um, here's one. What about we start restoring someone? We, seek, we, we move into this process and they don't change right away. We could be tempted to fall into anger. Why can't you just understand that this is not the right thing to do? We could get frustrated. People sometimes struggle to change, and they don't all always change the way we think they should. (laughs) And so we can be tempted to lose our cool over it. We could be tempted to be proud over it. Um... And maybe we could be tempted to take it into our own hands and kind of leave the word of God and, and use man's methods. Let's step back now and as we move into verse 2 and think about the bigger picture here. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And here's where Paul really connects to the context. Um, we, he's seeking those that are spiritual to, to, to help and restore those that, are, that have been overtaken. But remember that the Galatians had been influenced by essentially what Paul calls it another gospel in, in chapter 1 and verse 6. They were adding the works of the law to their salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. Right? And we... I, I mentioned his um, questioning of them at the beginning of verse or chapter three. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only what I learn of you, received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? 
Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So the works of the law, they had been, they had um, added that in. And the problem that that had caused by chapter 5 is that the opening of chapter 5, that he wanted them to stand fast in liberty and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The law is the yoke of bondage, and we know that. Um, uh, Paul talks about that throughout the first part of Romans, um, and obviously he's hitting it here. These two verses in chapter 6 is essentially Paul saying, hey, you need to be concentrating on things like this instead of circumcision and the elements of the law. And so notice here that he is not pointing them, he's careful to say, so and bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, was a burden. Right? He talks about it. It's a yoke of bondage. But now he's pointing them to the law of Christ, which commands us to move beyond the burden of the law, now to the burden of bearing other people's burdens. There's a transfer. It's not that we stop bearing all burdens and we're carefree and life is just we have no burdens anymore, nobody's burdens. Now we're supposed to bear you one another's burdens. That's how we fulfill the law of Christ. And that's consistent with Paul's teaching in his other epistles. Right? Romans 15.1 tells us a very similar thing. We then that are strong, spiritual, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, those that can be overtaken, and not to please ourselves. Do it in the right spirit. First Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak, those that are overtaken. Be patient toward all men. There's the right spirit. And so that, to me, bring, gives us a beautiful picture. He's telling the Galatians, they're, they're like, all right, we're saved. We are we are." Born again. We love the Lord. Jesus Christ is my Savior. And then they're like, oh, I see this law. I'm going to put that up on my back. And now I've got a new, now I've got a burden. Oh, I've got the law now on top of me. I'm going to add that to salvation by grace through faith. And Paul is saying, we're to take that off. And instead of wearing the burden that the law brings, we're to go over to our brother and take the burden that's on their back and help shoulder the load. It's agape love, right? It's self-sacrificial love that is just like what Jesus did. It's just like what our Savior did. He, he helped bear our, well, he, he did completely bear our iniquities. But even in, our, in, in his time in his earthly ministry, he helped shoulder the burdens of people. He healed them. We can't uh, give that type of miraculous healing um, to those that we come in contact with, but we can help shoulder some of the burden from them. And so this, the law of Christ aspect then demonstrates that there are expectations for the Christian. It's not like, well, we're free from the law. We're free to do anything we want, right? Um, that's not the case. We are free to the law of Christ. And there's the expectation is here is that brotherly restoration is one of the things we should do. 
1 Corinthians 9.21 also speaks of the law of Christ. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. So uh, we are under the law of Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. So we have a couple applications to end with today. And we can look at them from both sides of um, the person being overtaken. Application one is to be vigilant about not being overtaken ourselves. Related to that Spurgeon quote, are we progressing too slowly in the Christian life? Are we going along so slow that sin and problems are going to catch up to us? Be vigilant, be sober. Secondly, we need to be vigilant when helping others that are overtaken. Are we susceptible to pride? Is that a problem that we... And I think all of us deal with pride to some extent. That is just a common thing to humanity that we deal with pride. But is that something that we're going to face a particular challenge with when we're seeking to restore someone? Is, well, I'm only restoring you because you are not as good as me. Um, Are we susceptible to gossip or even anger? in our restoration, then we need to be careful and be vigilant of those things. And then, what burdens are we shouldering? Um, the law of Christ here suggests that, and from this, these verses suggest that, yes, there are things that we are struggling with ourselves, we're, we're working with the Lord, we're, we're repenting in prayer, we're seeking his help. But are we looking for the burdens of others to share in? The law of Christ is not a suggestion, it's a command born out of our love for him. We should not be seeking to give our burden to others, that's not our goal. <laughs> This brethren, if you have a load, go find somebody to give it to. That's not what Paul says. We need to find, we see someone who has uh, been overtaken. We need to help them. And that is a way in which we help bear another, somebody else's burdens. And so we need to share the load with them. And so the question then comes, if we're going to share the load for somebody, are we qualified to do so? Are we spiritual? Are we mature? Do we... Do we know how to interact with somebody in a spirit of meekness? What if they stumbled in something that really bothers us? Maybe, or maybe it's something we don't have a problem with and we don't understand how somebody else could. Are we going to need a, to work on our hearts there before we help them. And so that makes a pretty a beautiful picture of the church, right? You've got a bunch of people, if they are growing spiritually... There will always be some babes in Christ, either new converts or people that are slower in their development. Of course, you want everyone to be growing. But if you are, if we are have this heart of bearing one another's burdens, then everybody is helping lift everybody up. They're not looking for faults, but they know each other. So when they when faults come up, they help each other. And so it is a it is a place of shared burden. 
And so even as our little group this morning, we all have things we struggle with. And um, we can physically help each other share burdens. You know, I'm going to help you do your chore. I'm going to help you do this and help. And that's great. But we need to look for spiritual things too. Um, You know, I know such and such is tempted in this way. I'm going to see if I can't help that not that problem not happen you know what can we do what can we do to help um those not be overtaken so um i know it's only two verses and we're going to continue into some other uh um cautions um lord willing next week about uh as, as the as paul continues um but these two just give us an idea of restoration, the, 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 the spirit of it. And then ultimately, by doing it, we're doing exactly what Jesus Christ has asked us to do. So let's close in prayer.